Hello, everyone, and welcome to this September 6th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A lawsuit filed against Seize Candies, a century-old California institution, could make a fundamental change in the workers' compensation system and its long-standing exclusive remedy provision. The plaintiff in this case, Matilde Eek, E-K, that's Matilde Eek, a worker at the Seas Distribution Center in Southern California, contracted COVID-19 and apparently infected her 72-year-old husband, Arturo, who unfortunately died from the disease. Eek said she worked on the Seas packing line without proper social distancing and other protections, even though some workers were coughing, sneezing, and showing other signs of the COVID infection. She and her daughter sued C's, alleging that the company is liable for his death. C's acknowledged that Eek's illness was job-related, but argued that since it was, the company was protected from liability for her husband's death under the workers' compensation exclusive remedy provisions. But the Los Angeles Superior Court disagreed with C's demurrer to the complaint while agreeing with Eek's attorney that her husband's death was a separate event from her workplace infection. The ruling on the demurrer sent the issue into the appellate courts and it's drawing attention from major California and national business groups which see it as a potentially undermining a bedrock principle of California workers' compensation system. The California Chamber of Commerce, California Workers' Compensation Institute, Restaurant Law Center, California Restaurant Association, National Association of Manufacturers, and the National Retail Federation have filed amicus or friend-of-the-court documents in the case. They argue that the issue is extremely important to employers and their employees in California. Sees argues on appeal that the Superior Court's overruling of petitioner's demur was contrary to the long-standing derivative injury rule that establishes workers' compensation as the exclusive remedy for all claims that are derivative of an employee's covered workplace injury including claims for injuries sustained by members of the employee's household. The Superior Court created a new exception to the bright-line rule for injuries from COVID-19 that allegedly derived from employees who contract the virus in the employee's workplace and then infect their family members. The Court of Appeal docket reflects that an order was issued to the Superior Court on July 21, directing that it show cause why a peremptory writ should not issue, ordering it to vacate its order, overruling the petitioner's demur to the complaint. The written return in opposition to the writ shall be served and filed on or before August 18, 2021, and any reply to the opposition shall be served and filed on or before September 16, 2021. The outcome of this case will have a major impact on workers' compensation claims in California. 
Another case pending in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which governs California, has rejected a case attempting to fully legalize medical marijuana. The Controlled Substances Act of 1970 places federally regulated substances into one of five schedules depending upon the substance's potential for abuse, medical use, safety, and likelihood of physical or psychological dependence. Schedule 1 is the most restrictive schedule, and marijuana is currently a Schedule 1 substance. To merit scheduling in Schedule 1, a substance must have a high potential for abuse, no currently accepted medical use in treatment in the United States, and a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision. The petitioners in the case, Stephen Zizuski, joined by Jeremy Bowers, filed a one-page handwritten petition to the United States DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, seeking the rescheduling of marijuana and all of its forms under the Controlled Substances Act. Zuziski stated in his petition that he was, at the time, a prisoner after a conviction for selling cannabis. In his petition, he claimed the current situation of cannabis in Schedule 1 was completely untenable, since half the states allow for medical use. The DEA wrote a letter in response and gave the same reasons for having denied an earlier rescheduling petition filed by Governors Lincoln Chafee of Rhode Island and Christine Gregior of Washington State. Suzinski petitioned for mandamus in the District Court for the District of Columbia, and the District Court denied mandamus, and the D.C. Circuit affirmed. Subsequently, in May 2020, Dr. Suzanne Sisley, an Arizona-based medical marijuana researcher, along with the Scottsdale Research Institute, LLC, and three veterans who claimed to suffer ongoing harm from cannabis status, as a Schedule One drug asked for judicial review of the DEA's response to Zizisky's petition in the Ninth Circuit. These new petitioners did not seek to intervene in Zizisky's petition before the DEA, nor have they filed a petition of their own before the DEA. The government challenged the petitioner's standing and argued that petitioners failed to exhaust their claims before the DEA, and the Ninth Circuit held in a published opinion of Cicely v. the DEA that these petitioners had met standing requirements, but that they have failed to exhaust their administrative remedies under the Controlled Substances Act. The court therefore did not reach the merits of the argument supporting legalization of medical cannabis. It therefore dismissed their petition for review on this technical ground. In a concurring opinion, Judge Watford said that in an appropriate case, the Drug Enforcement Administration may well be obliged to initiate a reclassification processing for marijuana given the strength of petitioners' arguments that the agency has misrepresented the controlling statute by concluding that marijuana has 
no currently accepted medical use in treatment in the United States. And now our crime report. A landmark $575 million settlement with Sutter Health has now been given final approval by the courts. Sutter is the largest hospital system in Northern California. The Sutter Network consists of some 24 acute care hospitals, 36 ambulatory surgical centers, and 16 cardiac and cancer centers. <clears throat> it also includes some 12,000 physicians and over 53,000 employees. The settlement resolves allegations by the Attorney General's Office, the United Food and Commercial Workers, and Employers Benefit Trust, and class action plaintiffs that Sutter's anti-competitive practices led to higher health care costs for consumers in Northern California compared to other places in the state. This settlement is a result of litigation that began in 2014 when the union filed a class action lawsuit that challenged Sutter's practices in rendering, in rendering services and setting prices. They sought compensation for and an end to what they alleged were unlawful, anti-competitive business practices, which caused them to pay more than necessary for healthcare services and products. Then in March 2018, the Attorney General's Office filed a similar lawsuit against Sutter on behalf of the people of the state of California. The separate lawsuits were combined by the court into one case. Then in October 2019, one day before trial, the parties reached a settlement. The final settlement required Sutter to pay $575 million to compensate employers, unions, and others covered under the class action, and to cover their costs and fees associated with the legal efforts. Also to limit what it charges patients for out-of-network services helping to ensure that patients visiting an out-of-network hospital do not face outsized surprise medical bills. Also, to increase transparency by permitting insurers, employers, and self-funded payers to provide plan members with access to pricing quality and cost information, which helps patients make better care decisions. It needs to, and has agreed to, also halt measures that deny patients access to lower-cost plans, thus allowing health insurers, employers, and self-funded payers to offer and direct patients to more affordable health plan options for networks or products. It will also stop all-or-nothing contracting deals, thus allowing insurers, employers, and self-funded payers to include some, but not necessarily all, of Sutter's hospitals, clinics, or other commercial products in their plans networks. It then needs to cease anti-competitive bundlings of surfaces and products, which forced insurers, employers, and self-funded payers to buy more services or products from Sutter than were needed. Sutter must now offer a standalone price that must be lower than any bundled package price to give insurers, employers, and self-funded payers more choice. A report by the University of California Berkeley showed 
that outpatient cardiology procedures in Southern California cost nearly $18,000 compared to almost $29,000 in Northern California. For inpatient hospital procedures, the cost in Southern California is nearly $132,000 compared to more than $223,000 in Northern California, more than a $90,000 difference. The former president and chief executive officer of a Long Beach substance abuse treatment provider was sentenced to 84 months in federal prison for participating in a scheme in which more than $18.5 million in fraudulent claims were submitted to California's drug Medi-Cal program for alcohol and drug treatment services for high school and middle school students. 67-year-old Richard Mark Siampa, who lives in Commerce, California, was also ordered to pay nearly $18 million in restitution. Siampa pleaded guilty on January 6 to one count of health care fraud. Prosecutors have obtained a total of 19 guilty pleas in this case and its related cases, Siampa founded the nonprofit Atlantic Recovery Services, later called Atlantic Health Services, in 1996, and he served as its president and CEO until its closure in April 2013, following a suspension in payments. The company provided substance use disorder treatment services to students at local high schools and middle schools through Medi-Cal and its drug Medi-Cal program. Siampa billed the drug Medi-Cal program for services to students who did not medically need alcohol or drug treatment. The company also billed drug Medi-Cal for group and individual counseling sessions that were not provided or did not meet the requirements for reimbursement as to size, length, or setting and its employees falsified documents to support the false claims. Siampa threatened the employees that they would lose their jobs or have their hours reduced to part-time if they did not generate significant billings. In response to his threats, the employees were generating false and fraudulent claims for submission to Medi-Cal. He also encouraged employees to engage in fraud, telling them they should find a way to enroll more students in its program, despite Drug Medi-Cal's medical necessity requirement. In total, nearly $18 million in fraudulent claims were submitted because of this scheme. And now, in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation announced that as of October 1, in-person hearings will resume at all DWC district offices except for Eureka, which is now a completely virtual office, and satellite locations Bishop, Marysville, Chico, and Ukiah, which will also remain virtual. In-person hearings will consist of trials, lean trials, expedited hearings, and special adjudication unit trials only. Until further notice, the DWC will continue to telephonically hear 
all mandatory settlement conferences, priority conferences, status conferences, SAU conferences, and lien conferences by way of the individually assigned judges' judges conference lines. The DWC hearing notices will be updated as of September 17. Thus, there may be a period of time after that date during which notices will state that trials, lien trials, expedited hearings, and SAU trials are being heard on the conference lines when instead they are actually being in person. DWC requires all visitors to DWC offices to wear face coverings, regardless of vaccination status or county mandates, following a recommendation from the California Department of Public Health. The COVID-19 pandemic and resultant shelter-in-place orders disrupted nearly all business activity in California and the state and the country, especially access to medical care. So, in a newly published study, the National Council on Compensation Insurance associated costs with the time to treatment for work comp claims based on historical information to provide some insight into the impact of postponed medical care for specific work comp injuries during the pandemic. The pandemic's impact on medical services with respect to time to treatment, the pandemic did not adversely impact access to care as measured by the time from injury to initial treatment. The pandemic produced a backlog of surgeries, though, in April and May of 2020 that fortunately diminished throughout the summer and may have resulted in greater use of non-invasive treatments that are often preferred over invasive procedures. One NCCI found clear evidence of small delays in access to care associated with the pandemic it found no convincing evidence that either access to care or the quality of care was adversely impacted. While still preliminary, it found no convincing evidence that access to quality of care overall was adversely impacted. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California has released the 2020 California Workers' Compensation Aggregate Medical Payment Trends Report. This report analyzes medical payment and utilization trends by provider type, service locations, and different service types. Overall, medical payments declined significantly, largely driven by a sharp sharp drop in the number of claims during the COVID-19 pandemic. Average medical claim payments, average medical payment per claim and the number of transactions per claim started to increase despite the continuous declines in prior years. This was potentially due to a decrease in the number of smaller medical-only claims in 2020. Utilization of telehealth services increased sharply, in particular, during the pandemic. Physical medicine and rehabilitation procedures continued to grow and are the fastest-growing physician services. Use of analgesics, anti-inflammatories, 
increased more significantly than any of the other therapeutic groups. The share of claims that involve opioid prescriptions continued to decrease. Suburban and rural areas have seen higher shares of claims involving opioid prescriptions, while urban areas generally have lower shares. But the share of claims that involve physical medicine services increased steadily. Urban areas had a higher share of claims involving physical medicine services, while more suburban and rural areas had lower shares. The full report is available in the research section of the WCIRB website. Innervational Overdose Awareness Day is a global event held on August 31 last year. Its service is to raise awareness of overdoses, reduce the stigma of drug-related deaths, and acknowledge the grief felt by families and friends. On this day, the acting U.S. attorney again warned the San Diego community about the serious fentanyl crisis and advocated an all-of-society approach to countering overdoses. The U.S. attorney emphasized that federal prosecutors are leaving no stone unturned to hold peddlers of fentanyl accountable. Exports report that fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine and so dangerous that in its purest form, even in a very small amount, can be deadly. San Diego County officials report that fentanyl overdose deaths surged during the pandemic and are expected to reach as high as 700 this year in the county a staggering increase over the 2019 rate. The U.S. Attorney emphasized that in the face of this crisis, law enforcement is just one part of the solution, but we need an all-of-society approach. As a community, we must consider ways that we can play a role in furthering the public understanding that substance abuse disorder is a disease that warrants treatment, resources, and positive collective action. This year's virtual Western States Opioid Stimulant Summit is scheduled for November 4th and 5th, 2021, and will bring multiple disciples together to address every aspect of the opioid crisis. And now our news contributor, John Castro, has something to report this week. John, what do you have for us today? Thank you, Renee. The Sacramento Bee reports that California lawmakers are considering introducing legislation to require people to prove that they are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 before entering indoor public spaces like restaurants, bars, movie theaters, gyms, hotels, and stadiums. The proposal hasn't been formally introduced in the legislature and the timeline for action is unclear. Democratic Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks from Oakland said that the coalition of lawmakers supporting the concept has not decided whether to push the plan immediately or wait until January when the lawmakers return to work. Wicks said she is in conversation with business leaders, union representatives, and others whose support is necessary for any legislation to be successful. 
As currently written, the proposal would take effect immediately upon the governor's signature and would direct the Department of Public Health to develop an enforcement mechanism by November 1st. The proposal would create one of the strictest statewide vaccination requirements in the nation. The State Department of Public Health said last week that it was leading the nation when a requirement that everyone attending an indoor event with 1,000 people or more show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test. That requirement takes effect September 20th. Wiggs said that the new verification requirement could help drive up vaccination rates in California and finally end the pandemic that has spread in the state for 18 months. Back to you, Renee. As the COVID-19 pandemic goes on, the workers' compensation industry is still continuing to manage changing claim patterns and trends. As regulations and case rates continue to shift, Mitchell has analyzed its workers' compensation claims data to identify how claim trends have changed over the past year and a half. From January through June 2021, the finance and insurance transportation and warehousing and healthcare and social assistance industries reported significantly more workers' compensation claims than in the first half of 2019. On the other hand, Mitchell's data reveals that some industries have not seen pre-pandemic claim volumes return. The arts, entertainment, and recreation educational services and accommodation and food service industries are all still reporting significantly fewer workers' compensation COVID-19 claims. Though claim volumes are still down, all three of these industries are experiencing an increase in claims compared to 2020 volumes, but are subject to pandemic-related regulations and trends that may explain the lower volume of claims. About a quarter of workers' compensation COVID-19 claims include only indemnity costs, and those costs have declined over time. In January 2021, Mitchell reported that the average indemnity cost for a COVID-19 claim was $2,400 in 2020. But now that number has decreased by almost half to $1,380 per claim. On the other hand, average medical costs associated with COVID-19 claims have remained somewhat steady with just a slight 5% increase since Mitchell's last report. It comes as no surprise that the healthcare and social assistance industry sector is still the source of the majority of COVID-19 related workers' compensation claims, accounting for 49% of the total. That is almost five times more COVID-19 related claims than the next largest source, which is public administration, which makes up about 10% of all COVID claims. So that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, 
and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.